I kind of learn all my lessons through my my sons in a way that's like you should probably have known this before you became a parent. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I had started telling stories on the stage. I'd gone to the moth and started sharing, and so uh, my sons, I had told them many stories and had been telling them stories from even a, a very young age about my life, wanting to like change the way that uh, you know we kind of handled truths. And so my kids knew quite a few of my stories. Hi, this is Danae. I'm the founder of Simple Families. Simple Families is an online community for parents who are seeking a simpler, more intentional life. In this show, we focus on minimalism with kids, positive parenting, family wellness, and decreasing the mental load. My perspectives are based in my firsthand experience raising kids, but also rooted in my PhD in child development. So you're going to hear conversations that are based in research, but more importantly, real life. Thanks for joining us. Hi there. Thanks so much for tuning in. Danae here. That voice that you heard in the intro is Devin Sandiford. Devin is a writer, a storyteller, the founder of Unreeling Storytelling, and also a professional storyteller with the Gates Foundation. His stories have been featured in the Washington Post, The Moth Podcast, NPR, and many more. Today, Devin joins me to talk about the importance of storytelling, especially as a parent. He's sharing a few very meaningful stories with us. Devin and I are also talking about how, when, and if we should share some of our most difficult, important, and heartfelt stories with our own kids, and the impact it might have on our relationship and connection. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoy my chat with Devin. Hi, Devin. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing great. Thank you for asking and thank you for having me on. I'm so glad to have you. So tell us a little bit about yourself. That's always the hardest question. I always lead with the hardest. <laughs> yeah, I swear it is the hardest question. And I, I think the reason it tends to be so hard is because I feel like I'm constantly changing. Like uh, I honestly just started a new job maybe four weeks ago. And so, uh, so much changing. I'm a, in general, I'm a storyteller. I'm a writer. Um, I recently accepted that position to be a senior communications officer at the Gates Foundation, um, doing some story development and writing there as well. Um, But I think at the heart of me, I'm like somebody who wants to have deeply honest conversations with people um, and to like allow them the space to like share things that they don't necessarily share other places. Um, and I try and allow that to be, to show up in like everywhere that I am and to, yeah, to connect with people deeply. Mm, I love that. Um, I'm a therapist, so that sounds like a lot of what I do day in and day out (laughs) with my clients, right? And it's, it's funny that I often find, um, I did therapy for many years and then I did more parent work and I've moved back into therapy now. But when I wasn't doing therapy, I found that I was always kind of prying deeper into people's stories. And that, that's something that is my tendency, but it's, it's makes people uncomfortable sometimes. Have you seen that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it kind of just depends on where they are when they enter into the space. Um, can find people showing up in every single possible way. Some people just like ready to just dive right in and other people needing a little bit more time and space and all the variations of <laughs> personalities that I, I I tend to find. But I think at the heart of most people, they, they do really want to engage in that way. And so maybe just need a little bit 
extra. It's a little scary sometimes. Yeah, it is. And you're a dad. How old are your kids? My kids are 11 and 7. My reason I pause is because my younger son has a birthday on Tuesday. Ah, okay. So almost 8 and 11. Yeah, mine are 7 and newly 9. So not too far off from yours. And you have two boys? Two boys, yeah. Got it. Okay. So have you found that your storytelling has changed as you've become a dad? Um, so I didn't tell stories before I was a dad and I think being a dad probably is what pushed me into storytelling more than anything else. For me, I came from a, like a community, a family and like a background of not sharing stories, not sharing personal stories publicly or like even privately kind of, uh, holding in a lot for myself and just really keeping my head down and moving forward, trying to like be as productive as I could in life and, um, having children, I think forced me to see a lot of the things that I was hiding from and not wanting to pass on to them. Um, and so, yeah, the storytelling started with my, with my children, but my older son and really wanting to be a good dad to him and, um, to connect with him in ways that, uh, I hadn't been connecting with others and which, you know, requires honesty and authenticity. So. Hmm. So you're a first generation storyteller. I don't know if I would say that. My grandma used to tell tons of stories. I think it skipped, somewhat skipped a generation and not on accident. My uh, family, my mom's brother was shot and killed by the police outside Mm -hmm. of our home when I was six. And um, nobody in my family talked about the incident. And I think as a result of the incident, there was a lot that needed to be kind of held in for a moment of protection. And for me, I allowed that moment to expand into 30 years, which became pretty damaging as it relates to holding in things that you need to talk about. Um, But I don't necessarily think my family comes from a culture where the relationship between parents and child is really like a friendship as much as like a parent to child um, information passing. Um, and I don't say that to mean I'm like distant from my parents, like my mom and my dad were excellent parents and my dad and, and me connected on so many different things. So many of our interests overlapped. And I remember a lot of my most, uh, joyful memories being my dad inviting me to his soccer team's practices in the morning. He, he, uh, coached high school soccer. And so on Sunday mornings, he'd invite me, wake me up. He'd take me to the soccer store, uh, every year we'd get to buy, he'd buy me new cleats and a ball along with like getting the gear for the high school students. And so, uh, we had lots of great connections, but like sharing stories as it relates to like things that were needing to be shared were maybe skipped a generation because of this yeah, family trauma of sorts. Mm-hmm. So is that a story, that story that was repressed for so long in your family, is it one that is shared more openly now? Not really, no. Um, I've started to share it. um, And I, after the 30 years, 29 years, I had uh, called my mom to talk about it because we had never talked about it before. And uh, one of the scariest nights of my life to have to call my mom and bring this thing back up, um, knowing that it would be painful for her to talk about. And me wanting to be, yeah, what I picture a good son is to not bring pain to your mom. And at the same time needing to talk about it. And so it was 
in my apartment in Brooklyn. I called my mom and I kind of backed my way into the conversation with an apology that I needed to make to her for moving to Brooklyn away from our home in California without an explanation and knowing that like Brooklyn was a tough, a triggering thing from her, for her. She grew up in, in Brooklyn and had a lot of moments of, of hard times um, where her family immigrated from Trinidad and Tobago here to Brooklyn. And so I, I kind of started the conversation off with that apology. Um, but what I really wanted to talk about was my uncle. And so uh, diving into the conversation and coming to a place where uh, I was asking my mom about what happened and she was sharing and um, seeing my mom cry for the first time in my life. And it was really hard for me to think of myself as a peacemaker and a peacekeeper in my family and to be the one that brought my mom those tears and those memories of pain. Um, and I think what was surprising for me was like me being honest and opening up uh, led to a really deep conversation between me and my mom and her sharing some things that I could tell she needed to share um, and to sort of get off, her, get off her chest to the point where we talked, we ended up talking for like three hours. Um, hmm. and my mom lives in California. I live in Brooklyn. And so we have that three hour time difference. It was late at night and it was during the pandemic. So I knew that I had to, um, get some sleep because I had to, it was early in the pandemic, I should say. And we had um, remote schooling for the boys. So I was like ready to go because I'm going to have to help them the next day. And my mom is the one that actually stopped me to share more. She had written a piece mm -hmm. about her brother, about me and my brother and about uh, my two sons. And my brother has a son as well. And it kind of like held the feeling of like the fear that she has for us and also like the hopes that she has for us and some of the loss that she had from her brother and the human being that he was. Um, so it was like a really meaningful conversation and it has opened up other conversations with other members of my family about my uncle. But I wouldn't say people are now, you know, going out and talking about uh, my uncle all over the place. It's mostly me yeah. bringing people into a room and saying, I want to talk about this. Do you want to talk about this? Can we talk about this? Yeah. So, but I don't know, maybe in their private spaces, they may be talking about it more. Yeah. What makes me think about how sometimes it's hard to know what stories we can tell to kids. And when you were six, your parents probably made that hard decision of not sharing with you at that time. Is that something that you've reflected on this idea of, you know, when to tell kids stories that might be uncomfortable? Yeah, absolutely. I, and I think it's in the story, uh, probably that I was thinking of that I wanted to share when we talked. Um, and I kind of learn all my lessons through my, my sons in a way that's like, you should probably have known this before you became a parent. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I had started telling stories on the stage. I'd gone to the moth and started sharing. And so uh, my sons, I had told them many stories and had been telling them stories from even a, a very young age about my life, wanting to like change the way that, uh, you know, we kind of handled truths. And so my kids knew quite a few of my stories. By that point, I'd already started writing. And so uh, it came to my younger son being in kindergarten. They had a storytelling unit and different family members were like encouraged to come in and share stories, whether it was like a personal story or was like reading a book to them. Um, and so I was like, oh, like, I love this. Like I've been doing storytelling. I'll go in, I'll share a story. And so I asked my son who was five years old at the time, like what if he had a story he wanted me to share? 
And he, uh, he knew immediately the story he wanted me to share. And it was a story about me um, being in first grade playing on the playground. And uh, it was a story I did not want to share to his classroom. In this story, I'm in first grade. I'm six years old, so just a little bit older than him. I moved to this new school in California uh, where my dad taught this private school and just immediately was like excited to play with the kids in the school. The previous year for kindergarten, I had been uh, with, at home with my mom. And so I was like excited to play with the other kids. They told me about this game like called Cooties. I had never heard of it in my life. Um, but the boys like explained that like, all we do is we got to run away from the girls. They're going to try and kiss us and it's going to be gross. So don't let them catch you. And for me at the time, I had actually come from Miami, uh, moved to this smaller town in California. And I had a little girlfriend in Miami that like we'd go into the backyard of my parents' house and we'd like kiss on, <laughs> we'd kiss on the lips, lips with little like pecs. And it was just like, I thought it was magical. So these boys telling me that the girls are going to chase after us and try and kiss us. I was like, this is like literally the best thing anyone <laughs> could ever think of. And so the recess would start and sure enough, the girls would like chase us uh, all over the recess yard. There would be like these round circular, the circular um, lunch tables. They chase us between, we'd go down by the jungle gym. We'd go out into this like huge grass field. And then they'd eventually like corner one of the boys until they would catch one and kiss them. And I just thought like, okay, this is like, yeah, this is a great game. Um, but it would take me like a few weeks to like start to see that like uh, none of the girls were trying to chase me. And actually, whenever I would get close to them, they would be like really afraid and uh, would run away if I got too close. And I didn't understand it at the time, but I was one of two black kids and it was just not something that they were you know, familiar with. And I became like this gross figure. And so when I told my son this story the first time, I told it in a way that was like very funny. And when the when I got up to the girls, I, I, you know, I said, ew, like, and they ran away. And my son thought it was hilarious. Um, and so like, he didn't really fully get it. And so I was like, uh, yeah, um, I've told it to him before. And I told him why it was like, not a funny moment of sorts, but he wanted me to share that story. And as much as I tried to like convince him, like, nah, let's, I want to think of a different story. Like I'm fine telling you the story and to tell you like the whole heart of it, but I didn't really want to bring that to a class of like 30 kindergartners and have the discussion yeah. and me being the one leading the way. And he, like, he literally took his head and like dropped it and his shoulders slumped when I told him I wasn't going to share the story. And so like, I felt really bad uh, on the day of, I decided like, I'll tell, I'll tell the story. And what I'll do is I'll just like pull all the race parts out of the story and tell it. So it like really doesn't get into the heart of it and I don't have to feel it. And so I get into the classroom, I sit down. Um, the teacher allows my son to sit next to me on the bench. All the kids are sitting in front of me. And I go through the story, I tell everything, but I cut out the parts about race, I cut about the parts and it just make it into a fun, you know, playground story. We all have playground stories. This was one of them. Yeah. And I get to the end um, and the teacher opens it up for questions. And the first two questions are like completely forgettable. I'll never remember what they are. But the last question from the kid, I'll never forget. Um, one of the kids raised their hand and asked, why didn't the girls want to kiss you? And then I was like, right there at that moment again, like, oh gosh, this question. And so I tried to like figure out a way to like relay it in, in a way that was like safe for me and safe for the kids. And, but before I could come up with an answer, one of the kids from the back just shouted out, it's because he was black. 
And I was like, yep, yep, that's exactly it. And then we had the discussion and the teachers kind of like released me like you did it. You finally got through this moment because they could see that I was like looking to them to like cut in and to like be the ones that did it instead of me. And as I like kind of walked out of the classroom, I was pretty disappointed in myself knowing that my son knew the full story next to me and that like I had pulled out part of my identity, a part of his identity out of it. And it was really hard for me to like think of like, why did you do that? It doesn't make any sense. And I don't know, I wasn't like quite ready to like have the conversation directly with him about all of that. Um, but I was actually doing a storytelling workshop at the school. And so I asked the principal if it was okay if I tell the story uh, again and I explained it to her, like I wanted to do the full story. And she's like, yeah, it's absolutely fine for you to tell a story. And she said this thing that I'll never forget. She said, we never withhold the truth from the kids here. Um, but if you can just make sure that you give them an opportunity to ask questions at the end. Um, and I think that was like really moving for me because I never had this feeling of a teacher who would be, be like so open to the truth before. And a lot of the places I was in, it felt like we always had to like hide the truth to like not talk about the things. And so I got into the storytelling workshop and I told the full story, went all the way in, gave all of the heart of it uh, to this group of um, this kindergarten to fifth graders. Um, So I I gave all of it and then I opened it up for question. And the very first question was from this must have been like a first or second grader. He had this haircut long on one side, short on the other side, really flowing hair. And he looked up at me and was like, you know what I hear in that story? I hear a lot of pain Mm. and it reminds me of a time. And then he told a story of when he was excluded from a group, this little white boy, he was excluded from a group for a completely different reason. And then one after another, each of the kids shared a story of them being excluded from a group. And I just remember feeling uh, how meaningful that was for me and to have the kids have an opportunity to talk about times when they had been excluded. um, And that for, for that to be the, you know, the result of it, not necessarily for me to have gone in and have told the beautiful story and to really move them. And so I think when I think about now, when I think about things that I want to share with my sons, but then also with other people, it really is as much of the truth as I can give. And if I have to adapt the story that is in a way that's appropriate for a certain age group, then I think doing that is what feels right, but not uh, withholding any of the truth because kids, kids already know. They, they know. the truth. Right. Well, that, and that's what I just kept thinking when you were telling that story, how amazing was it that they knew, right. That kids spoke up and said what was hard to say, but they, that honesty, right. That <laughs> they, they can't hide the truth, which is kind of a beautiful thing. Yeah. And it was great that it was, uh, it wasn't a black kid that shouted it out. And so it was like all the kids knew, not, not even yeah. just, so, yeah. um, and it wasn't, in, it wasn't in a malicious way at all. It was just like, we know, like, just say it. So right. let's talk about it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. How did your son feel after that? I think after that, uh, I think he's a little bit older now, but he like understood the weight of it. And for his own body, he's had experiences of, you know, what the world tells us is like not beautiful. And so he actually had a moment to reflect on it recently where he wanted everyone to know that like everyone is beautiful. And so uh, 
I think he still sees moments for me where I'm afraid to say the thing that I think is going to hurt people and hurt him or hurt anyone. Um, but he's actually really good about sitting in those like painful moments and wanting to be in them. So, um, yeah, especially my younger son, he pulls a lot of that out. There was another moment where he saw me crying and it was like, instead of, Oh, let me go into the other room away from my dad. Like, let me see what it is that he's crying about and wanted to like be a part of it. So it it took me a little time in that, in, in that moment too, to like, to share. Um, but yeah, I think he, he and most kids and all kids maybe know the truth and at times are ready and willing to sit in it, especially if we're ready. So we're going to pause for a quick break from our two sponsors. The first sponsor today is Nestle. Parents have to cut through so much internet noise when they have questions and challenges throughout the parenthood journey, from fertility to pregnancy to toddlerhood and beyond. Nestle is the answer. It's an online platform where parents can go to find evidence-based resources about the topics that matter most. They can get pressing questions answered by experts in their own time and turf, without judgment, without noise. Nestle's offering a $10 credit to Simple Families listeners, which you can use towards a wide selection from one-to-one coaching sessions, on-demand classes, group classes, and more. Join at nestle.com, that's N-E-S-S-L-E.com, using the referral code SIMPLE. Our second and final sponsor for today is Thrive Market. Thrive Market is my go-to for all grocery and household essentials. That's where I get my favorite Simple Mills crackers, my Artisana nut butter, and many other favorite brands that I've been eating forever. As a Thrive Market member, I can save money on every single order, an average of 30% each time. Not only does Thrive Market save me money, but time. They have filters on their website and app. So if you're like me and you eat gluten-free, you can search via that or any other dietary restriction. And when you join Thrive Market, you're also helping a family in need with their one-for-one membership matching program. When you join, they give. So join Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash simplefamilies for 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. That's thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E, market.com slash simplefamilies thrivemarket.com slash simple families. Thanks for supporting our sponsors. Back to our chat. Well, and I, and sometimes we think that they're too young, but it's so interesting. I mean, I think about when kids can really start to see themselves in stories. I remember reading my daughter, the book, The Big Red Barn. I think that's what it's called. Um, when she was maybe 18 months old and she always used to cry at the end where you put the you put the animals were put to bed at the end of the book and she would just cry these huge tears every single time that I read the book mm. and it was you know she she didn't like being put to bed she didn't like being left alone you know in the barn like the animals were mm. and but it was just amazing to see that she could quite literally see herself in that story even before she was 2 so I, th- I think that we we sometimes think that kids aren't going to get it when they're little, but storytelling helps them get it even more than direct teaching, which is what sometimes we think kids really need. But storytelling can be so much more effective. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to your point, a lot of the times, whether they can get it or not, they are a part of it and can feel it. And so leaving them out of the story just leaves them to deal with it on their own. Um, yeah. Which I think is 
you know, from my experience, not that my parents, mm. you know, did that. They did try and talk to me about my uncle and um, it was partly me, partly them thing. And so, but then from there, it was me processing things on my own. I didn't bring the stuff to them that they could have helped me with. I just went off and, and took care of it. And so even if we're not talking about it with our kids, they're still dealing with it and still having to carry the weight of uh, the silence of sorts. Right, right. And because it doesn't really get any easier, regardless of the age, understanding and processing it. Yeah. I, I just took, um, we had a death in the family, and I just took one oh, of my sorry. kids to, thank you, I just took one of my kids to their first funeral. It was just, I, I, it was one of the situations we were traveling, and I could only take one. And, um, but I wanted, it, it was hard. It took my six year old, and it was hard because I, you know, is she, was she old enough, quote unquote, old enough? Um, should I, you know, keep her away from the open casket where she saw the body? You know, I, I had a lot of questions, you know, about what, how much could she handle? Mm. Um, and I just decided to go uncensored and let her take the lead with what she was comfortable with. And she asked a lot of questions and was really present and open to listening and to learning and kind of felt her way around the situation. Um, so I, and you know, it's funny because I think sometimes we overthink things and mm. we, we, you know, I get people that email me questions all the time. Like my kid is this old, are they old enough to do this or know about this or, and there's not really an age where kids are quote unquote old enough to know some of these hard truths about life, but kind of introducing it can, um, little by little, I think can be helpful too. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's the what uh, what I've heard about um, drinking alcohol in other countries where in our right. country, it's a no-no until you get to college and then you like just drink all that you can. <laughs> Not that I was a drinker like that at all, but um, whereas in other countries, you know, having alcohol at meals can be a part of things to the point where you get to your older age, you're not feeling like this is something that's been withheld from me. So now I have to have it at, you know, have all of it. Um, it's kind of interesting yeah. to think of cultures and the ways that they grieve in the same way. And my wife is actually Indonesian and their relationship to uh, grieving and specifically like burials and funeral services is so different in a way that like reminds me that like a lot of the things we have are based on the culture that we live in. They oftentimes will bring the body into the home for like a week for family members to come over and to mourn together um, before moving it to the burial site. And so uh, she's gone to so many more funerals than I have ever gone to. And it's just like a part of the culture to have reverence for that part of life. And so mm -hmm. I, I think thinking of children and what you were off, you know, able to do with your six-year-old I think feels so right to me. And especially if we have intention around it and we're like brave to do it. I think a lot of the mm -hmm. times the lessons I'm learning are like, you know, kind of on accident and right. oh, I didn't, I didn't know that of sorts. Um, and so uh, I, for anybody who that's can. <laughs> so often the case for all of us, I think. Yeah. <laughs> when I think there, there is some fear with parents around storytelling because we feel like kids can't handle some of the hard truths and things about life and sto even stories about our own lives that they may or may not be able to handle. And, you know, maybe we think that kids need stories with happy endings 
And so I asked you today if you could share me a story with an unhappy ending. And you tell me a little bit about your thoughts on that, because I loved your explanation as to why you yeah. didn't feel like your stories had happy or unhappy endings. Yeah, it's, it's, it was so interesting when you asked. And I feel like a lot of people will bring it up and think like, so a lot of people think, oh, my stories hold so much grief. Or like if they do have like an ending that is positive for them, they think as happy or sad. And for me, I don't know. I just, what I was thinking is I don't connect with it in the same way. At the end of each of my stories, there's like some aspect of something that was meaningful to me that I'm like wanting to relay to someone else, whether it's like with my sons or with someone else. And so I don't, I think meaning things that are meaningful are happy. And so whether it's, you know, me talking about the death of my uncle or me talking with my sons about, uh, Ahmad Aubrey and, and really bringing that to them and seeing the pain that it brought to them and the pain that it brought out of them, some things that my sons were sharing, that to me is a beautiful moment. I wouldn't classify it as like happy or sad. It was meaningful and informed the way that we can move forward. Um, and so I, I think that's usually how I connect with stories and relate uh, and probably why some people think I'm strange to just like, why does he want to keep telling stories of grief all the time? It's just like, for me, it's not bad. It feels, it feels good at the end. Well, it's connection, right? right. Those stories bring connection right. and that feels good. Yes. Right. It's Very not great. celebratory yeah. joy, but it's connection and that connection that we all feel to one another, um, even if our stories are different. Yeah. That's really great language to that. I think that is the reason that I started telling stories after so long of not uh, the deep desire to be connected with my mom and my family and, of course, my sons, like I said. So only being able to do that with authenticity and talking about real things, I feel. Yeah. So can you tell us a meaningful story today? I can. I can. <laughs> um, and I, I alluded, alluded to it earlier. Yeah. Um, I was at the early in the pandemic, May, early in May of 2020, I was in my living room um, and uh, I had started to see images of Ahmaud Aubrey popping up all over. And for me, having experienced aspects of this from my uncle, I, you know, I was like, I've seen enough of these videos. I absolutely do not want to watch this video. Uh, I was prepared to do like whatever it took not to see it. Um, until like it started popping up literally everywhere on the news, on social media, like it was unavoidable. And so I knew that it was going to eventually like come out of nowhere and surprise me. And so instead of having it surprise me, I figured I'm going to sit down in the most private place that I could find during the pandemic, which wasn't very private, but <laughs> sit down in my kitchen with my earphones in and watch this video. And I sit down and I push play on this video and just almost like instantly as I'm like hearing the gunshots, I'm like pulled into this really dark place. Um, and I'm starting to like cry and it's becoming an ugly cry. There's like mucus and my five-year-old, um, or maybe he was six years old by that point, five or six years old, he walks out of the bedroom that he shares with his eight-year-old brother. Yeah, he was still five. Um, he walked out of the bedroom that he shares with the eight-year-old brother and he walks right up to the table where I am and he sees me crying. He's like, dad, can I see? And uh, I didn't have any language for like what I was feeling. And I kind of was just like, I think the word I said was like, no, but I also like somewhat brushed him away with my hand. 
And once again, I saw him like hang his head, drop his shoulders and like turn around and walk back to his room. And I was like feeling terrible that I like just like shut him down completely. Um, but having this like incident with in my family, I just couldn't imagine putting like the full weight of this on like his little shoulders. He's just like so small. And so I didn't want to do that. And actually what we were supposed to be doing was uh, we were supposed to be playing a game of Roblox on the phone, like just go on to the games. And I think maybe Bed Wars or like Flag Wars or one of the games that my kids like to play. And so instead of uh, talking about uh, Ahmaud Arbery, I decided to go into their room and see if they were ready to play. Kind of just pushed my phone into my pocket, went into their room, um, found a spot on their like blue and white area rug in front of their bed and like sat down and asked my sons if they're ready to play. And my older son uh, just like shot up really fast. So he was on the bottom bunk and was like grabbed his iPad. He just loves whenever we get to play. And it's, he loves to play by himself, but he loves even more when I get to play with him. And so he grabs his iPad. He's like ready to play. Um, but before we can start playing, he like looks across at me. He's like, but why were you crying? And I think hearing those words from him really caught me off guard because he was like in the next room. And I was like, how did he know? And also he's usually the one that doesn't like to deal with these type of things. And so I was caught off guard trying to find a way to like not talk about this at this particular moment, trying to like search for like, like a little white lie that I can get us through this. Um, and when I, I honestly couldn't think of anything. And so like I pulled out my phone and I told them that I had to share something with them and that it was going to be hard, but that I needed them to listen because it was really important. And so I knew that I couldn't share like the actual video. It was just like too much for a five and eight year old to have to witness, but I wanted to find something that would, you know, tell the story. And so I found an audio reporter, a reporter um, reporting on the incident. And so I pulled out my earphones from my phone and I pulled them in a little closer and I pushed play. And within seconds of me pushing play, I am looking across at my eight-year-old and he's got his hands over his ears and his knees to his chest and he's like shaking. And he's not saying any words, but I can just feel like he wants, he's like, it's like he's saying like, turn it off, turn it off, turn it off. And I push pause and I look across at him and I'm like, it's really heavy, right? And he's like nodding his head and I hear my five-year-old next to me. He's like, what do you mean heavy, dad? Uh, and I'm like, Ugh. like, right, there's a five-year-old, heavy doesn't necessarily have any meaning. And so I like crawl a little closer to him and I put my hands on his shoulder and on his chest. And I, I say to him, like, I mean, like the sadness and the grief, the, it's just like, you can feel it on your shoulders and you can feel it on your chest. It's kind of tight. You know what I mean? And he's like, yeah, he's nodding. And my eight-year-old cuts in. He's like, maybe he's nodding and he's saying he gets it because he sees us crying, dad, but maybe he doesn't fully understand. And I, I'm just like surprised again at my eight-year-old. And I'm, I'm like, you're probably right. You know, maybe he doesn't fully understand. And maybe you're both too young to have to deal with this. But I know that you can already feel this in your body. And I don't want you to grow up to be like me. When I was your age, I used to be just like you. Like I used to go onto my bed and curl up my hands whenever I saw my mom going to her room um, to cry. And uh, I used to push down all of the things in my life and just really try and move on past them. And before I could get to my point that I was like trying to teach my sons, my eight-year-olds like, dad, that makes no sense. Because everything that you're like pushing down, it's just things that you're piling up that you have to carry around with you everywhere that you go. 
And his words just like really moved me because that's exactly what I've always felt. Like this really, this burden that I've had to carry with me everywhere I go. And I didn't really have, there wasn't really much more for me to say because he had said everything, but I wanted to make sure to emphasize that, uh, that I didn't want them to grow up like me keeping everything inside and pretending like it's going to go away when it's not. Uh, that not talking about it actually makes it much, much worse. And when I said that, I see my eight-year-old hang his head and his like lip starts to quiver. And uh, when I ask him what's wrong, he tells me that earlier that year, he had somebody call him poop on the bus. And uh, I think it was just like the most weighted moment for me to have things that I had experienced be things that he experienced. And for me to not have known that had happened for like all this time. And I think my first response actually in, inside of my head was like, all right, who is this third grader that said this? Let's go find them and their parents. I have no problem like accidentally knocking some kid down or like shouting in someone's face. Um, but I think when I looked at my son and how hard, like his body was curled over in like weightedness, I knew that like that wasn't what he needed. And so I shared the experiences from my childhood, feeling those same feelings and being so burdened um, and thanking him for sharing. And just in those moments of like me being honest with him, him being honest with me, it wasn't this happy ending, but it was very much this ending uh, of that moment where each of us had felt so deeply connected um, and this real like, um, levity in the space of not being alone. Um, and actually, uh, moments later, a friend of ours who lived in the hall, one of our only pandemic friends, um, they live in our apartment building, they came over and they walked in and they're like, what just happened here? I just feel like there was something that was like, there's so much energy in here. And so uh, we connected with them and, and kind of had a moment all together talking about uh, some of the grief that was at that particular time of time, you know, in New York City with all the deaths mm -hmm. that we experienced and all the things about race added on top. So, uh, yeah. yeah, I wouldn't think that that's a happy ending, but for me, it's a very meaningful and um, purposeful ending and a moment of mm -hmm. connection with my sons. Yeah. Well, I think it's a, a moving story and, I feel moved listening to it. And I think about the word moved because I think sometimes that word indicates, you know, it's an emotional story, but it also, you know, it moves the way you think. It changes the way you think. And, you know, the, well, the way hearing you tell that story really moved me and changed my viewpoint on things because, you know, when I watched those videos of Ahmaud Aubrey, I didn't have that same experience that you did because mm. my life experience has looked very different. And so hearing it through your eyes has really given me just a tiny bit of a lens of what it must be like to see those news stories on TV as a black man, because I have no idea, but now I feel like I have a little window into it. And that I think is part of the beauty of storytelling is being on the receiving end. Mm -hmm. But what about being on, on the storytelling end? How do you feel like that has changed you too? Yeah, on the storytelling end, I think for me, it really has changed uh, 
how I carry those moments in my body and mm. being able to, the storytelling is like the expression, the release of uh, these really difficult moments and the difficult moments come for all of us. And I think having held it in for so long and starting to, to share it, I'm not going to like sugarcoat it, that it actually is really, really difficult to share. And it feels like, it feels like you're living it all over again. And so it is painful. And I could, I understand why I was silent for so long because not only for me, but for my mom having to relive those moments, not even just like a story, but the actual, like I'm back at that moment when my brother was killed for my mom. Um, and so it's really painful. Well, at the same time, having that expression feels like strangely lighter. And I think it comes back to the point of what you're saying in the connection of uh, after you share those, there's always a moment of connection with somebody. And even when I share in what I would, you know, what you could classify as room full of strangers, quote unquote, every time I share a story and I'm like honest and vulnerable, somebody comes up to me after and tells me some aspect of their life that they've never told to somebody about their grandma who's recently passed or about somebody in their family who has cancer or about some diagnosis or about um, uh, stillborn that they had to like live through and they never talk about with anybody. And so it's uh, very painful to share while at the same time brings those moments of connection and the levity from not having to hold it in my body. So, mm, yeah, that's, it's, it's so powerful so much, I think. And I think as parents, when we can do that and when we can share that with our kids, it's something that can really build our relationships with them. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, I think about your kids and hearing these hard stories. Do you feel like they are more, have been more likely, like your son had shared that example? Do you think he's more likely to share those examples moving forward after that, that story, that connection that you had with him in that, in that situation? Yeah, I think especially my younger son, because I uh, started telling stories and starting to like uh, discover more of myself and be okay with releasing it. And I think, you know, there's the masculinity side of things as well, where men don't often share. So I started sharing and being open, um, doing a better job of that when my younger son was born. And so my older son, I, it kills me to know that I somewhat put in him for many years to not share these things from me not sharing them. And while people will tell me like, it's, um, it's okay. He's still so young. He can, he'll get it. And regardless, he'll be fine. It knowing that I wanted to be a dad from such a young age to pass that on to my son and to know that he has a tougher time with it than my younger son really makes me feel like I have failed him in ways. Um, but for both of them, having had the change and seeing the change in me, my younger son actually, now, when he, he recently wrote a piece uh, for his school, and he's in third grade now, he wrote a piece about something that was really heartfelt and something that was hard, uh, that would be normally hard to share. And I, I imagine it was hard to share, but it was like a full-on story where he was giving his heart in this thing. And I was just like so happy for him that he had that. And knowing yeah. that he is a, he, there's a lot of similarities between me and him and him being the younger child I was the youngest in my family and him being shyer as a result of that um and getting hit to see him like open up and then also with my older son like he um it's a little harder for him because he he had all those years of like this is what it means to be a boy mm -hmm. this is what it means to be a male um 
but I find that when he does, when he chooses to like acknowledge the moments that he, he's brought to tears pretty easily. And I think tears for me, especially for uh, anyone who's like uh, male is a real celebration for me because I know that like, there's so men that are like just being strong and not crying because they learned how to not cry as opposed to like this actually being a moment where you should cry because it's just something really hard or grief filled. So uh, yeah, it's changed both of them to be able to um, start to share those things. My older son having a more of a challenging time opening up about difficult moments, I'd say though. Yeah. But it sounds like he's always listening. He is always listening. Very, reflective kid has the intellect side of it down, I would say. Um, whereas my younger son has like the emotional intellect side that he's pretty strong in. And so it's interesting to see the two of them play off each other and the, the challenges that they have in their communication and their relationship, yeah. um, which <laughs> also probably comes from me and their mom. So, um, right. Right. What about your wife? Is she a storyteller? My wife isn't, um, it's really interesting because she, when she does tell stories, they're really powerful, really moving. She writes as well, but she doesn't share it with anyone other than me. And sometimes I feel selfish in that because it's like so powerful and so moving. And like, I know there's like communities of people and specifically uh, Asian American immigrants who would be moved by her stories. And sometimes I tell her that and she hates when I does because she doesn't, she doesn't want to <laughs> write that way, but um, when she yeah. does share with the boys and when she does share with me, it's really moving because she doesn't share off as often. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, she loves to tell uh, experience of her life that happened, but just doesn't like to go necessarily into the past and the painful past yeah. that connects to the present. So um, yeah, it's interesting. Well, maybe in, in due time, who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Devin. It has been so great to hear some of these stories and learn a little bit more about you and your life experience today. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. So tell us where we where can we find you online and get in touch with you? You can find me online on all social media, just at Devin Sandiford. Um, and then also on my website, devinsandiford.com. I have recently shifted over what I was calling a newsletter and always felt so icky calling it a newsletter and I'm now moving into what I'm hoping to have it be a community or like a movement, a movement around specifically what we talked about, allowing people to share the things that they normally hold inside so that they don't have to be alone. So it's really a space that I hope is inviting for people to come in and and share aspects of themselves. Um, So yeah, devinsandiford.com. Okay. And that's where we can find the community as well. Yeah. Uh, join the community just on my website. Great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. I really enjoyed speaking with Devin today. If you want to get in touch with him, go to simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 336. You can get all of the links there. Thanks so much. I'm glad you're here.